Well, friends, we've been in the midst of that most wonderful time of the year, and you might think as I say that, given the beauty of the handbells we just heard, I'd be talking about Christmas, but I'm actually not talking about Christmas. I'm talking about that most wonderful time of the year, as in finals week. Yeah, finals week. Visit a coffee shop. If you've done that the last two weeks anywhere in town, you have been reminded that it is time for finals. Anxious students, right, feverishly studying. They're cramming all kinds of caffeine into their veins as they're trying to cram even more data into their brains from the semester of work that they have not yet accomplished. Seeing those high school students and and even those college students crammed, so to speak, and really hunched over their laptops, you know, that reminded me just a few years ago, right, of my days in finals, sitting in those study groups, what are, what are we all doing? We're pondering what's going to be on the final, right? What's the professor going to spring upon us? And of course, what's the hope of every student, but, but to get that softball question, you know, to get, to get something right off perhaps a previous exam, maybe something right off the review sheet, You know, the professor just sort of lobs it in and you think, yeah, I've seen this question before. I know this. We covered this in the review. I got it. I can nail this one. That's that's every student's dream. I don't know about you. I don't know how your finals have gone or how your finals will go this week. But I know for me, particularly in, in college, that was never my experience. It always seemed three hours later when the final was over, we'd be gathering together with our students. We'd be looking at one like, what in the world was that? You know, and never the softball, right? Always the curveball or some changeup. Never, never seemingly prepared for the final. And all of us would moan and complain. You know, and I raise this because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been bringing us to the moment that we're coming to this morning. And in many ways, it's like a final. Chapter 8 marks the end of the first semester, if you will. Really the great divide in the book When Jesus looks at the disciples and for the first time asks them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Of course, that has been the question that's really dominated these first eight chapters of Mark. Who is Jesus? And this morning is the final. Right? You may not have realized you've come into a final this morning, but you've actually entered a final this morning. And the question is, who is Jesus? And after the the last few months we've spent in Mark, I wonder if you feel ready to answer that question. Are you prepared to sort of ace the exam? Right? How would you answer the question of who is Jesus? Well, friends, to help us think more about that this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me and your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30. And if you don't happen to have a Bible, don't be alarmed by that. We provide them in the seatbacks before you. You can find Mark chapter 8 on page 844. Page 844, if you're using one of the red Bibles in the seatback before you. And listen, if you're just joining us, these first eight chapters, as I said, have really been consumed with the question of Jesus' own identity. His identity. So back in chapter 1, Jesus is preaching, right? It electrifies the crowds. Such that we see even in chapter 1, evil spirits are, are bowing before his word. And, and everyone's asking in 127, what is this teaching? Who is this guy? In 2.7, the scribes are asking the same question. Who is this Jesus? Because he claims the power to forgive sins. And they know the only one that has the power to forgive sins is God alone. So who's this Jesus? 
In 441, what do we see him doing? We see Jesus stand and he shouts into a raging storm and the storm is calmed. The seas go still and and the disciples cry out, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Remember chapter six, he goes back to his hometown. We expect a, a wonderful homecoming and welcoming, but instead they can't figure out how this familiar sort of neighborhood nerd they grew up with, how he's become this guy, this formidable force. They say, isn't it Mary's son? Isn't, we know his sister's the right here. Who's this Jesus? In 614, Herod, he's asking the same questions. Herod puts together a little work group, gets some pollsters on the phone, right? Chapter 6, the results come back in. Who's Jesus? Well, some say he's Elijah. Some say he's one of the prophets. Others say he's John the Baptist resurrected. Those are the questions, again, dominating these first eight chapters. And notice who's asking the questions. We've got the crowds, the populace at large. You've got the religious authorities. You have the disciples. You have his sort of hometown homies back there in Nazareth. You've got even Herod and, and the political leaders, right? So from your average individual right there in the populace to sort of the politicians right at the height of power everyone's asking the same question no one can escape it if you live in israel it's the question on your lips who is this jesus who is he and yet while it's the question everyone is asking none seem to have given the right answer the question keeps coming we saw last week how jesus sort of lobbed Another softball, one question, so to speak, before them. Right? He, he sets up a scene in which it should be impossible for them not to understand who he is, but they totally whiff it, right? They don't even get the bat on the ball. And it looks ridiculous and silly, but nonetheless, they're still missing his identity. So we close last week, chapter 8, verse 21. Jesus exasperated. He, he's looking at them and, and he's saying, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet know who I am? When it comes to Jesus, friends, many have opinions. They have opinions. But if you've come this morning, know Jesus isn't merely interested in our opinions of him. This isn't a question that he means to leave open to our own interpretation or to opinion polls. No, Jesus is looking for an answer. Who is he? And not just any answer, he wants the right answer. What would you give? What answer would you give? Well, let's begin reading chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. 
and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Well, friends, at that moment, with Peter's confession, we hit sort of the great continental divide in the book of Mark, right? The, the denouement that brings sort of all the various strands we've seen of this Jesus all together. Peter makes his great confession, and it's at this point the book's going to turn, identifying who he is in his person, or we're going to turn to his purpose of, of why he came. And the pace in the book is actually going to pick up. Jesus is largely going to pull away from the crowds, going to invest heavily in the disciples. The miracles will, will be curtailed, so to speak, as Jesus really sets his face toward Jerusalem. But in these seminal verses, what we see are two different scenes. Right In the first scene, we've got a blind man who receives his sight. And in the second scene, we've got the blind disciples who are just for the first time gaining insight. A blind receiving sight, disciples gaining insight. And I think these two, scene, these two uh, scenes, as they come together, I think they combat sort of three common misconceptions we often have about, about Jesus and about spirituality. So that's how I want to think about uh, our text this morning. In light of those three various misconceptions we can have about Jesus, as we try to think about his identity, let's work at some of the ways in which we often misunderstand And the first misconception I want us to consider is the one that we're in fact all spiritually enlightened. And that's our first misconception. We're we're all spiritually enlightened. Now, if you've been paying attention to the cultural trends, right, you know that sort of spirituality, broadly speaking, spirituality is in vogue. Right? Yoga, you maybe think, yeah, yoga used to be just for hippies, but now, you know, soccer moms, like down dog, namaste, they all get it. They know it. Horoscopes. Maybe you would find those like in tabloids, but you find them today sort of prominent on on nearly every newspaper across the country. The percentage of Americans who who identify as spiritual but not religious rising up now close to 30%. Now, by most accounts, we see ourselves as sort of a spiritually enlightened society, right? We don't need to go to church to sort of tap that inner energy. We don't need institutions to sort of harness our inner chi, However we want to talk about it, spiritually speaking, we think of ourselves as, as largely enlightened people. And so yet we come to the story of, of a blind man. And it's clear from our story in this first scene that this, this man can't see. He can't physically see. Right? We read in 822 that some people, no doubt friends of his, come to Jesus and they bring this blind man to Jesus and they beg of Jesus to heal him. Now, we hear that word beg, and perhaps that recalls to mind a a number of other scenes we've already seen in Mark, right, where where others have brought those who needed healing to Jesus, like back in 140 when the leper comes to Jesus begging to be clean. Or in chapter 5, right, the evil spirits begging to Jesus not to destroy them. Jairus begging Jesus to heal his daughter in chapter 5, verse 23. The friends of the deaf man just a few weeks ago begging Jesus to heal their deaf and mute friend. If you've been paying attention to Mark, the picture is that humanity is is suffering from a kind of brokenness that is all begging for Jesus to bring healing. And so in chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus takes the man. What does he do? He takes him by the hand. Just a small detail, but, but again, one that highlights the compassion of Jesus. The man can't walk alone, so Jesus takes him by the hand. He leads him. 
And then in verses 23 to 25, Mark, in fact, uses eight different Greek words to describe sight, to describe seeing. Now, in the English, we just largely have that one word, sight or seeing. But, but the, the plethora of Greek words is meant to really highlight the man's great need, right? To emphasize he can't see. Jesus must heal him. But Mark's interest isn't fundamentally in the man's physical blindness, Mark's interest is to actually highlight how the man's physical blindness actually points to a much deeper spiritual blindness. How his physical blindness points to a a much deeper spiritual blindness. Because as we've seen through Mark, who's the most spiritual figure, if you will, throughout the book thus far? It's Jesus. And yet no one in the midst of Mark is yet enlightened enough to even recognize who this Jesus is. No one can pass the exam. They've all failed thus far. It's like a multiple choice. You've only got so many answers. They're picking every one but the right one. They're not especially enlightened. The image is one of blindness. It's one of deafness. Recall the the critique, the stinging critique Jesus gives against the disciples last week, chapter 8, verse 17. He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes... Do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? The problem is actually we're not spiritually enlightened. That's part of what Jesus and Mark is helping us to understand. We're actually spiritually blind. We're spiritually deaf, which is why these scenes, right? These scenes, these two miracles we've seen, first of of a deaf and mute man being given his hearing and the ability to speak, right? That. And then this healing, this healing here of a, of a man who's been given his sight, a blind man who receives his sight. Those two healings, right, in the middle, Jesus' critique about the fact they don't hear and they don't see, right, that critique sandwiched around those healings just meant to emphasize how these two healings are just acted parables. Jesus saying to them, listen, physically, this is what you are spiritually. Spiritually, you're blind, you're deaf, These physical miracles are meant to help you see your spiritual deafness and only I can bring the cure. Only I can heal you. And so Jesus' action in healing the blind man, it's just a, a perfect illustration of what he needs to do with any of us who would be his disciples. Right, He's gonna take them patiently by the hand and he has to restore our spiritual sight. Right, We have to be given sort of spiritual spectacles so, so we can see rightly. You know, it's what Pam read in Acts 9 earlier. If you caught that, Paul persecuting the church, struck by blindness physically as a picture of his own spiritual blindness. He was actually persecuting the very God he claimed to love and serve. And it's not until he recognized Jesus for who he really is that what the scales fell from his eyes and he was given spiritual sight. Now listen, if you've come this morning and maybe you've assumed that that your spiritual sight is, is actually pretty good. You know, maybe not 2020, but you know, it's passable. It's, it's respectable. You know, spiritually speaking, you're doing pretty well, pretty enlightened. You know, if that's you, part of what Jesus is saying is, you'll never really understand me. You'll never understand Jesus if you see yourself as spiritually enlightened. Because his testimony is that we're all spiritually blind. Right? We're groping about as those sort of shrouded in darkness. We don't see ourselves rightly. And therefore, we, we're prone to either overestimate ourselves, 
right? Our, our goodness and our ability to change ourselves. Or maybe we underestimate ourselves on the other side, right? We don't see ourselves as, as made in the image of God and worthy of proper respect and dignity and honor. You know, we don't see this world rightly. You know, so many view it as a sort of grand cosmic accident rather than this, this gloriously ordered cosmos that, that bears the very fingerprints of an intelligent design creator. We don't see Jesus rightly. You know, we see him as, yeah, he's a compelling teacher. Maybe he's a, a great moral leader and example, but that's all. We stop there. And part of what Jesus is saying is that all that, that is symptomatic of a spiritual blindness. And so we struggle to make sense of the world. Right, what have we struggled to make sense of these past few weeks? The avalanche of, of sexual abuse claims that have, that have come forward. You know, for a people who pride themselves on being spiritually enlightened, we especially think of where some of these, some of these crimes have been most pronounced in those areas of California I know well that claim to be so spiritually enlightened. For a people that claim such spiritual enlightenment, like we're very sort of benighted. We do cruel and, and horrible things to one another. You know, we just drive on, a, drive on a crowded road, right? Drive in, in the midst of traffic. You know, go through an airport, hit those crowds. I mean, I was at Target yesterday. Holiday cheer with all the people. Not at all. No holiday cheer. Right? Those things can bring the worst out of us. Because part of what the Bible and part of what Jesus has been trying to help us see, we're not actually spiritually enlightened. We're, we're actually spiritually enslaved. We're not enlightened, but we're in fact enslaved. Now that's not the end of the story, though. Because the blind man is going to be given sight. And his physical sight is going to be mirrored in the spiritual sight that comes to the disciples as Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Now at this point, with such a confession, we would, we would expect, you know, all will go well for the disciples. The storms will give way, right? Smooth sailing, calm seas. So the, the disciples will go from sort of those spiritual boot camp dropouts who couldn't, who couldn't even pass the first exam to sort of the sort of spiritual special forces like the SEALs. Like that's going to be their experience. Nothing's going to be too hard for them. Mission accomplished, right? The victorious Christian life. This is what we expect. If only that were so. And if only that were so, because that, I think, really brings us to our second misconception, and that's that spiritual growth is instantaneous. This is the second misconception we often have about spirituality and Jesus, is that spiritual growth is instantaneous, instantaneous. Because, you know, we're addicted to the, to the new, to the now. We don't like to have to wait for anything, right? Our phones, our internet, we always want something faster, something quicker, Right, two-day prime, that's not enough anymore. Right? Not not have two-day prime, it's like overnight. I just saw they're doing overnight prime with some some packages. Right? Why send a letter? Why spend the time to write out a letter when you can just send a text? Why read the news in tomorrow's paper? I mean, tomorrow's paper's so old. Just get an NPR podcast. You know, every hour news updates. Right? We want immediacy. We want now. I wonder if that's how you feel when it comes to the Christian life. You want that kind of immediacy. You want growth to be instantaneous. Did you ever wonder why it takes Jesus two tries to heal the man? It's an interesting question. It's rather curious because I don't think we read of another miracle in the gospel where Jesus sort of has to give it two tries, two stages. You know, he places his hands on him once 
And the man looks up and says in 824, I see people, but they're like trees walking. Okay, now how does the guy know what trees look like? I don't know. Maybe he wasn't blind his whole life. Maybe blindness came later. The text doesn't really say. But what's clear is that he doesn't see perfectly. So Jesus has to lay his hands on him again, a second time. And it almost reads like one of those, or looks rather, like one of those blooper reels. You know, you see them at the end of movies, all the sort of takes where things didn't go right. There was a misline or it was a mistake, and they, they throw it at the end. It's sort of what, it got cut from the movie, but for, for some humor, they put it on. You know, and in Luke and in Matthew, this story isn't here. Like it was a blooper that was never meant to make it in, but inadvertently, Mark just kind of included it and added it. Well, I mean, how do we understand sort of Jesus having to give it two goes, right? Is he, is he losing his mojo, like Jedi powers weakening? What's happening? Well, I think in the same way that the man begins to see, yet imperfectly, so it's picturing how the disciples will begin to see, but imperfectly. The man is half healed to highlight how the disciples will only at times half see. I think part of what Jesus is helping us understand is that that spiritual growth isn't, in fact, instantaneous. It's incremental. doesn't happen all at once. It's not instantaneous. It's it's incremental. Because in a moment, what's Jesus going to, not Jesus, but Peter is going to make the great confession. He'll make the great confession. Then right after he does that, verse 31, Jesus is going to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer Many things be rejected by the elders, chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise. And what does Peter do but immediately takes him aside and begins to rebuke him? Right? He'll have the Messiah, but he's not going to have the suffering Savior. He'll have one but not the other. Peter understands at some level Jesus' identity, his person, but he's not going to accept the purpose. He's not going to understand it. Right? He sees, but only imperfectly. So in the same way that the the man, the blind man, moves from inability to see to sort of partial sight to complete sight, so the disciples are going to move from this inability to understand, no comprehension at all, largely the first eight chapters, to, oh, now they begin to see Peter's confession. There's, There's partial sight to by the end of the book and into the book of Acts, complete sight. Right? Their spiritual growth, it's not perfected all at once. It's progressive, it unfolds, it happens in stages. Just a word, I think, on what this doesn't mean and what it does mean. First, what it doesn't mean is it it doesn't mean we're to make this two-stage sort of a paradigm for the Christian life. As in, like, a Christian believes the gospel and then sort of waits for kind of a second touch by Jesus, a second empowerment, sort of a, a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. You know, that if you don't have this second blessing, all you've got is some impoverished version of the Christian life. No, the disciples, you know, they bridge the gap between the old covenant, between the new covenant. You know, in the old covenant, what does Moses do? He descends upon the mountain and he receives the law of God written on tablets of stone. You know, as you get into Acts, what happens? Jesus ascends in Acts 1. And then what comes down is the law of God, not written in stone, but through the spirit written on the human heart that all can hear and understand and know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. The great promises of the old covenant being fulfilled there is as the Holy Spirit comes down and, and God's people are dwelt by his spirit. Right? That regeneration doesn't come in stages. That happens once and, and powerfully when we're born again. Right? That's, we're not looking for a sort of a second experience of that. And yet, it does mean that, yeah, we're going to be born again, but, 
but we don't arrive instantaneously, right? We, we grow, and that, that growth is progressive. It's incremental. So notice how Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 117. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, right? That you might see, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of the glorious inheritance in the saints. He's saying, listen, I know you know hope. Rather, heaven is your hope. Heaven's your home. You know that. But you haven't really grasped what it means. I'm going to pray that you continually understand and grow in that understanding. It's often why sometimes when I, when I preach or when someone preaches on Sunday night, I'll often pray Psalm 119, verse 18. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law. Right? Spiritual truths must be spiritually discerned. And this incremental work of spiritual discernment, that's the work of the Spirit right, that Jesus sends. You know, it's interesting because in the next section, Jesus is going to sort of drop that final exam question on the disciples. You know, it's when he does it, verse 27. And on the way, he asks them. That little expression, on the way, if you, if you know Mark well, that expression is going to come up repeatedly in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And if you know Acts, before they're called Christians at Antioch, they're called sort of followers of the way. It becomes synonymous with being a Christian. The point, subtly there, is that, is that Christianity is, is, is a journey. Discipleship is a journey, right? Discipleship doesn't happen all at once. Now, it's not a journey without a destination. Sometimes people talk about Christianity like that. It's all about a journey, Right, a pilgrimage that just never really arrives. Well, that's not at all what the Bible is saying. No, the pilgrimage itself isn't the point. As we'll see, the, the pilgrimage is pointless unless you arrive at the proper destination, unless you make the right confession about who Jesus is. But you know, once you do that, the growth happens incrementally. It's not just that a Christian makes a one-time decision and right now all the work is done. No, Jesus doesn't produce those simple decisions. He produces disciples that follow him that model him, that walk after him on the way, and that, whose lives become really a clear depiction of who he is. And I say this, friends, because I don't want you to lose heart. You know, if you're a Christian here, I don't want you to lose heart because progress in the Christian life, I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems painfully slow. It seems painfully slow. And if that's you, Look at the disciples. Just consider the disciples. Consider how slow the disciples were to catch on after all the time they spent with Jesus. And yet, note, they do catch on. Right? They do get it. It comes eventually. It's not always as fast as we want, but that spiritual understanding and that growth comes because God's Spirit will bring it. So if you're struggling this morning, you know, if you're struggling with persistent sins, don't give up persevere. Don't say it's no use. Don't say God can't change you, right? Look at Peter. Peter makes this great profession. And then the very next verses, what does Jesus have to say? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, what a picture of the Christian life. God leads us and we know these spiritual victories. And then in the next instant, we can fall and we fall in humiliating ways and hard ways. That's the way of the Christian life sometimes. You know, he's impulsive, Peter, with his mouth. His mouth is always getting him into trouble. 
But yeah, where is he in Acts 2? He's the one preaching and the spirit descends and scores are saved and there's the establishment of the church. Right? We, we can't lose sight of these things. It takes time. Right? So if you're discipling a younger Christian, right, be patient. They'll say stupid things. They'll do stupid things. Right? All of us will. But as we grow, we'll hopefully do them less and less. You know, it's a gradual work. We don't become sort of those spiritual special forces again overnight. It takes time. The grand mark of a Christian. What is it according to our statement of faith? For those of you who read our statement of faith. What's the grand mark of a Christian? It's not their perfection. It's their persevering attachment to Christ. That's the grand mark of a Christian. Not that they've got it all nailed, that that their life is perfect, but in the midst of their weaknesses and their lack of perfection, it's that persevering attachment to Christ. So be patient. You know, it seems to please God more to change people slowly than to change our circumstances quickly. That's what we find sometimes. It seems to please God more to change his people slowly that in fact to change our own circumstances quickly. All right, spiritual growth, that's not instantaneous. It happens incrementally. We see this with the disciples, you know, back in chapter four. They're cowering in the stern, right? Asking who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And now Jesus puts the question to him in 829. Who do you say that I am? And I think Peter's answer to Jesus's question, I think that, challenges sort of the third misconception we have when it comes to Jesus. And that's that Jesus is simply a spiritually enlightened version of us. I think that's the third misconception that that this text tackles, that Jesus is a spiritually enlightened version of us. He's a spiritually enlightened version of us. And I know that's not artfully put, but hopefully you get the point, right? Because when it comes to Jesus, that is actually how many view him. Right? He's the, sort of the Jewish version of sort of Buddha or Confucius. Right? He's, he's what Gandhi is to, to Hinduism. Or he's what Mother Teresa is to Roman Catholicism. And that's how people think of Jesus. Enlightened? Yeah, he's enlightened. A wonderful model for us? Oh, yeah, he's a great model. Is he much more? Uh, I don't know. You know, that's what dominates the new sort of waves of spirituality. So, quoting from an article in the New York Times recently, new spiritualists, quote, may like Jesus. They'll talk of him as their guru. He might be one of their bodhisattvas. I didn't even know what that meant, but apparently it's sort of an enlightened being in Buddhism. But Jesus as God, uh, that's not on their radar screen. Right? That new spirituality, though, what I want you to see, that new spirituality is actually not new. That spirituality is very old. We find it in our own verses here. Because after healing the blind man, what does Jesus do? He travels north to Caesarea Philippi. And as they, they travel, Jesus puts that final exam question to them. Verse 27, who do people say that I am? And notice, what do they respond? Verse 28, John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. Right, we've seen these men before back in chapter 6. Why these men? Well, you know, Elijah was taken up in 2 Kings 2. And it was believed he was taken up, you know, before he passed. He was taken up, he'd, he'd descend, and he'd come in the day of judgment, the great day of the Lord, Malachi 4. Deuteronomy 18 spoke of a day when God would raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. You know, John the Baptist was a great prophet. So maybe Jesus is like one of these guys, like Elijah or John the Baptist. Now to be likened to these men, right, that's high praise. 
to be said, like, you might be like one of these. I mean, this, is, this really puts you sort of in Hall of Fame categories. If you're a Jew, high praise, great honor. But, you know, as an aside, if you want to understood better how Jesus' contemporaries viewed him, how he appeared to them, just consider who was Elijah? Who was John the Baptist? I mean, these were fearless preachers. These were guys who didn't mince words. These were guys who got under your skin and then like stayed there and pressed and, and leaned in. Uncompromising messages about, yes, God's goodness and yes, also his judgment. They preached both. So we can talk about contemporary Christmas hymns that speak to gentle Jesus, so meek and so mild. And yes, his touch may have been soft, but his message had plenty of sharp, hard edges. But the point was that in the end, all these men they're comparing Jesus to, they're just men. They're just men. Or as we might say, they're just enlightened versions of us. I think that's where many of us stop right there. We stop right there. We give opinions Right, We offer up speculations about who Jesus is. Maybe we refer to the latest PBS special as if Jesus' identity can be determined by some armchair theologians and a few opinion polls. But notice how he then flips the question. Yeah, okay, I got it. Those are the opinions of others. Verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That use emphatic. The picture is Jesus turns around. He kind of gets chest to chest with Peter. Right up in his face. And says, "All right, that's fine. I want an answer from you though. What's your answer? I don't care what those armchair theologians have to say. Right? They can pontificate all they want about various opinions. And never arrive at a real clear answer. Who do you say I am? Because it's one thing to offer merely opinions of others, but it's another thing if we got to get in the ring with Jesus, look him in the eye, and give him an answer. And this is the first time Jesus has put that question to the disciples. And notice he hasn't rushed it. We're, We're halfway through the book before Jesus really demands an answer to this question. Because he doesn't want them groping about blindly in the dark. If this is a multiple choice exam, he doesn't want to be like, well, I guess not this one, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." He doesn't want that kind of a response. He doesn't want guesses. He doesn't want answers. He doesn't want things on the basis of mere hearsay. He wants them to answer this question on the basis of evidence. Eight chapters of evidence. And that's what these chapters have been. The constant teaching, right, from city to city. The miracle after miracle. He wants them to make an informed decision about his identity. And the shoe finally drops for Peter, right? The light comes on, and then he just bursts out, you're the Christ. How long did it take him to come to that understanding? I don't know. Did he come to understand it as he said it? The text doesn't say. But it's the first time anyone has made that connection so clearly, right? God has said this about Jesus back in chapter 1. The demons have said it about Jesus in chapter 1 and 3. They've testified to his true identity, but the best the disciples have done at this point is call him teacher. The Syrophoenician woman took it one step further. She called him Lord, but no one has called him the Christ. Not yet. And in that moment, right, everything changes. Peter's head explodes, and and that last question of chapter 8, verse 21, do you not yet understand? It was crying out for this answer. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. 
all the miracles, all the activity, they're, they're intersecting in that confession that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the promised hope for God's people. Now, why did it click here? Why now, of all the times? I, it might be related to the fact of the, the healing of the blind man. You know, in verse 25, we read that the blind man, his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and how he saw everything clearly. But, you know, the Greek's a lot more forceful. It's really emphatic. It's, it's to highlight how miraculous this healing of the blind man was. It's, it's not like when he was done, the guy still needed readers. It's not like LASIK, you know, where there's a little bit of pain and lasers and some discomfort, maybe a little bit of blurriness at night. No, when Jesus was done instantly, like 2010, he can see perfectly and clearly. And that's to highlight the greatness of Jesus. But yeah, but why this miracle, though? We've seen great miracles before, the leper, even Jesus raising the dead. But, you know, if you know your Old Testament, only God can restore the sight of the blind. Isaiah 29, 18, in that day, in the day of the Lord's coming, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Psalm 146, 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Because right, here's the thing, in the Old Testament, Elijah actually fed multitudes. Not quite as miraculously as Jesus, but he did it. Right? He even raised the, the widow's son at Zarephath. Like, so, so you have examples of Old Testament prophets doing many of the things Jesus did. But there's not an example to my recollection of, of anyone ever healing a blind man as Jesus does. And so if Jesus is trying to make a point about himself, he couldn't be any clearer. He's not just Israel's long-awaited Messiah and deliverer. He's actually God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. And maybe it's this healing where finally it clicked for Peter and he understood who Jesus really is. You know, but at a deeper level, we have to say Peter understood finally because God gave him the sight. You know, you know the parallel account in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. What does Jesus say to Peter? He says, blessed are you, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So in the same way that only Jesus can give physical sight to the blind, so only the Father gives spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind. Now this doesn't mean Peter has it all figured out. Right? His whole notion of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, it's going to be in need of a great facelift, of a, a great re-understanding. Because he's not going to understand that Jesus is, is not going to don sort of the soldier's sword. You know, Jesus is going to take up that servant's towel. And that's what he's going to that's what he's going to throw over his shoulder and that's going to confuse Peter. Peter assumes Jesus is going to restore Israel to all of her former sort of politic, political and military glory. Peter knows the promises of 2 Samuel 7 of Psalm 2. There's going to be a ruler over David's throne from David's house and he's going to reign forever over God's people. And yet Peter fails to see how this same ruler and Messiah is also going to be the suffering servant, right, of Isaiah 52 and 53, or, or Psalm 2. Right, Peter wanted a designer Messiah, one made to sort of suit his own needs. They were looking for Christ to triumph over their enemies, but they've yet stopped to consider whether or not they might be one of Christ's enemies. They thought their greatest problem was Roman occupation, they hadn't stopped to consider whether or not the greater problem was the occupation of sin 
in their own hearts, how sin had occupied their hearts. They wanted a sovereign, but they weren't ready for one who was also going to be a savior and who go to the cross to save his people. Friends, where does that leave you this morning? Where does that leave you? Because this question Jesus poses, it's not a question just to the disciples. It's a question he means for all of us to answer. Right here, right? Jesus getting up into our own grills, so to speak, getting up in our own faces and saying, who do you say that I am? How do you answer that question? Right, final exam time, how do you answer it? Because we like to seek our designer messiahs, you know, the ones we can dress up according to our own needs after our own likeness or those things we value. And so if you, you know, Jesus for some will just become the great champion of, of the socially ostracized or the dispossessed. Jesus, the great moral teacher. Jesus, the true picture of sort of enlightenment living. Some feel very virtuous for just having any opinion at all about Jesus. And that may seem like high praise. But Jesus isn't asking us to invent some truth about him. These eight chapters has been so they can discover it. It's not to be invented. No, they need to discover it. Because Christianity isn't something we make up. I'm not making it up as I go here. Jesus isn't going to be molded into our opinions, however lofty our opinions of him might be. At the end of the day, Jesus wants us to know one thing about him. He is the Christ. Right? He's God in the flesh. He is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He is the world's only Savior because he lived in this way. All of these miracles as signs attesting to his identity. Then he died on the cross, having lived that perfect life, a substitute for sinners, for those who are spiritually blind, dies in their place. He rises from the grave. So that all of those who see their need of a savior like this Jesus and who are willing to be led by the hand by this Jesus as they repent of their sin and they trust in him, they can know newness of life. They can have this Jesus as their savior. That's what Mark has been building toward. You know, if you've come as a a non-Christian this morning, maybe you're a skeptic. You're hearing all this, you're slightly intrigued, but you're not really convinced You know, there's a book that maybe have helped to you, a little book, Who is Jesus? Very simple title written by a friend of mine. We've served together. We went to opposing schools, but we don't have to bring that up. Great brother, very helpful book written with a skeptic in mind, right? He once wasn't a believer. And we have copies of these at the bookstall as you walk out these doors, head to your right. We have a number of copies of these. And if you're a skeptic and you'd like to think more, they're free for you. Right? Free for you. No gimmicks. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to give us your email or phone number. Just take one and just agree to read it, or at least read some of it. And if you're a member of the church, right, you can buy one later. But these are for those who come in and want to think about it. All right? We have copies of these free for you if you want to think some more. Because to, to deny Jesus' uniqueness, to make Jesus just like one of all the others, that's not just a minor misunderstanding. It's to completely misunderstand him. It's to, in fact, insult him. Because he's either the Christ or he is simply a figure who's dead to all but antiquity. And Peter is already helping us see that one day, every knee in the universe is going to bow before this Jesus. A guy who never ran for office, never led an army, who never got rich, who never really traveled far from his home. Doesn't even speak English. 
But this is the Savior of the world. Every knee will bow to him. And on that day, oh friends, the stakes are so much higher than merely a final exam. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him as the Christ? Friend, recognize there's not another option. It's Jesus as the Christ or nothing else. Do you know this Jesus? Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray and we pray that in the midst of our own spiritual blindness, you'd open up our eyes. Oh God, for those who have rejected Christ, who have not seen Christ as worthy of their affections, who have not seen their need for Christ, oh God, we pray that through your word, you might reveal such spiritual truths to them. Lord, for those of us who need to be brought anew to the wonder of Christ, Lord, to our Messiah, who reigns and rules and yet was so humble, oh God, we pray that you would cause us to bow our own knees in gratefulness and, and gratitude. And we give you praise for, our son, for Jesus, our Savior. In Christ's name, amen.